It is episode number 25 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. This week, my longtime friend Jeremy Keefe joins the program. He's one of the co-founders of the agency ClearLeft and a frequent author and speaker on what he calls the true nature of the web. We talk about his new book, Resilient Web Design, and get into the history of technology, how we make decisions about what to use, and how our industry seems to make the same mistakes over and over again. So let's get right to it. So I think the last time that we hung out was in Dusseldorf. That's right. I was, I was trying to remember myself, and uh, I came yeah. to the same conclusion. A city that is tremendously fun to pronounce. Dusseldorf. Um, we, had a, uh, we had a pretty good time. That was a great conference. That was, yeah, I was oh, actually man, just I was back over there for the most recent one, and it was, it was particularly good this year. I'm blanking on the name. Beyond Tellerrand. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Mark, Mark Thiel's conference. Yeah, with uh, the weird he, mixture of English and German in the title. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, it was great. It was really good. It was good this year too. It was really good. It was a really good mix of stuff. Yeah. What's the highlights? What are the what are the kids talking about these days? Uh, well, see, I you know I obviously got to hear you know technical stuff about websites, making web stuff, APIs, but there was also some stuff more from the art world that was oh nice outside my wheelhouse. So that was good. That was really good. Illustrators, um, uh, uh, calligraphers. You know that was mm. yeah that was cool. Yeah, I was at a, a thing a while back, a dinner actually, uh, and somebody gave up, stood up and gave a talk and showed their work. Who was a sculptor? Oh. Uh, who? This is a guy that takes giant blocks of stone and makes um, beautiful, beautiful sculptures out of it. And talked through his process and stuff like that, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad I work on software." That <laughs> yeah. just sounds so. I could. It was so like abstract, you know, that whole idea of there's the, the you know, you just take away the parts that aren't the yeah. that aren't the angel. I think it was, isn't that what the yeah the Michelangelo approach to yeah uh, yeah to yeah. Sculpture. Oh man, yeah, so that's good. I like I like that like cross disciplinary. Yeah, that was like, that's, just, that made it good. There were surprises for me, which was good. Yeah. Anything Anything new in the web development world? Um, I'm, uh, well, it wasn't not web development, but I guess on the tech side, you know, there was there was the obligatory machine learning talk, um, yeah. And but interestingly, again, from the perspective of an artist, so oh yeah, that yeah, was yeah. really interesting to see. Like, okay, machine learning, but let's do have some fun with it and do some interesting stuff. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's obviously the the hot topic on everyone's lips these days. Everywhere. I mean, I so as we're recording, it was just uh, two days ago that uh, Apple had their worldwide developer keynote. Yeah, and I felt like every single new feature had to do with, well, we're using machine learning to make uh, Siri sound more natural. We're using machine learning to, you know, and it, to, to the point of even uh, developing a new chip just for those sorts of ag- algorithms. And the um, Google's, um, what was the Google thing? It was like a month ago. Um, yeah, the, at, it, at I.O. Yeah, it was like the, I.O., that was it. It was it was AI this and AI that for just about everything. T- tensor processing units, and so nah, it feels like we're right on the edge of something changing again. All, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out where on the hype cycle we are. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, are we peak peak of inflated expectations, or you know, which means we'd be heading for the the trough of disillusionment any day now? We've been through it a few times with AI. Like, true, a number of times. Like, I think as far back as the '60s. Yes, we've gone through this trough, and so hard to say, right? Yeah. It, it really is hard to say. Although uh, it feels like there are some really tangible things in the world could, that could are finally using this be now. the uh, the plateau of productivity that we're on with AI. It, yeah, it could be. It could be. It's hard to say. 
I, you know, I've been thinking about this framework. I think you'll appreciate this because you and I, you know, like we go back and we think about things historically. And I do want to actually talk about the, the book that you put to the web resilient web design mm -hmm. uh, a little bit. Because I was, uh, oh, and you'll appreciate this. I have been consuming your book by having it read to me by the Siri voice as I walk around London. <laughs> so uh, that's been great. It's a, one, it works perfectly as an audio book that way. So Well, I, I actually recorded <laughs> I think, an audio version. Oh, you did? Yeah. I didn't even see that. Yeah. I could have heard you. Had you read me reading read it, it yeah. to me? In well, your... I didn't put that much effort into it, but it, oh, as it turns out, a lot of people are listen, listening to the book rather than reading it, which I would have put more yeah. effort in if I'd known. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, for what it's worth, the markup really supports having a machine read it to me. Excellent. So, so you, you never <laughs> know where your markup's going to end up. There you go. Yeah. It's one of your big points in the, in the book, and I appreciate that coming through. <laughs> but yeah, so this like machine learning thing, and where, where are we on that? So here's this framework. I don't know where I first heard this. I'm obviously stealing it from somebody. I would never have come up with something like this. But, but if you think of like the history of digital technology and these big like eras that we've been through, and think about things really starting in the computing era. And I mean, way back, right? Mm -hmm. like, like census data and accounting ledgers and decrypting German messages and rocket trajectories and stuff. And that's when computers were thought of only being available for computing. And then I would say it was kind of the late 60s and early 70s when it, uh, computing started moving into content. And you could do things like search text and store text. And that's where we got like relational databases and SGML and, mm. and some of those early technologies. And then later on, uh, just a bit later, into communication. Right? Yeah. So from computing to content to communication. And that's when we re realized that computers are better when you plug them in to each other. But that also gave us like email and digitized audio and video and, and just that big transformation. And so I think we're coming on a new era that I would, that I would qualify as comprehension. Mm. That we've gone from computing to content to communication to comprehension where the machine can start to understand for some, value, for some definition of that word. Yeah. And I think when I say like there's some, some real world applications now in that computers can treat audio and, and images and video the same way they can treat text. They can manipulate it and search it just as easily and produce it in lifelike ways and things like that. And I think that's one step. Um, and again, you know, like looking at what Apple was showing off with their AR kit and just how far we've come with uh, being able to augment what, what we see in the world around us. I don't know. I think comprehension might be the next big era. And I don't, I don't know where we are on the uptake of that. But there tends to be kind of killer apps in each one of those eras, you know, yeah. like computing really uh, came in its own with uh, the spreadsheet, VisiCalc and right. Excel, right? And content was very much, you know, desktop publishing and the word processor. And, and then the um, communication was the browser. And so what is it for comprehension? I don't know. But yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? I, well, I mean, on the one hand, you're right. It's like, you know, computing has evolved. And yet when you, when you bury down, it's like, it's still all brute force computation, right? Even all this amazing machine learning, artificial intelligence, when you dive deep into how neural nets work and what's going on, it's like, okay, it's crunching numbers, but it's doing it, you know, in, in a clever way, but it's still, you know, power goes in and the more powerful computer you've got, then... Uh, mm -hmm. the more you can get done. It still, it still kind of goes back to computing and number crunching, the same as calculating, you know, ballistics. It just happens to be the material you're working on now is maybe audio or video, which was the, the kind of original stroke of genius that, that 
Ada Lovelace realized when she was working with Charles Babbage was that, okay, so we're manipulating numbers, right? We're, we're, you can calculate numbers, add numbers, multiply numbers. That's fine. But if the numbers could represent things other than simply numbers, if they can represent, if they can be symbols for things like words or ideas, mm. then you can do calculations on words and you can do calculations on ideas. Um, and, you know, there was never a direct lineage there between between that train of thought and, you know, Alan Turing wasn't even aware of Charles Babbage's work, really. But right. that idea that it's it's all abstraction, right? Um, under mm-hmm. the hood, it's still it's still number crunching, but that there isn't a limit to what the numbers could represent. If, as long as numbers can represent symbol can be symbols for something, you know, ones and zeros can symbolize anything. Then, yeah, the the computation part can can go further. And I don't I don't know if it's well, I don't know if it's actual comprehension. But then you're starting to stray mm, right. into the the hard problem, right? You're starting to get into well, what is comprehension, which starts to skirt on the edge of what is consciousness, and and then you're you're going down a whole nother rabbit hole there, right? Yeah, yeah, and that one is I I find fascinating in the like science fiction that I read, mm-hmm. and I and I think that's a fine prototype to paint of the of the future. Sure, I, I think that's really interesting, but again, like I tend to be a lot more pragmatic about yeah. that stuff and and try to try to think like what what can it solve, what can it open up now? I mean, I guess that's uh, in in some ways as an investor part of my job these days is to try to uh, make some interpretation and some guesses and bets I guess, what are the applications all of that. yeah yeah exactly exactly so but yeah yeah so maybe maybe instead of eras they are just layers of, of abstractions and layers of applications but yeah anyway um find that really interesting so first of all thank you for writing this book oh, resilient web design i would say my pleasure but I, I, that would be a bit of a lie i'm not sure it was a pleasure no, Writing is never a pleasure. Yeah. Having written is, exactly. is quite a pleasure. Though. It's a pleasure to have, have, have written the book. What's your motivation for... Well, let me ask the question differently. Why did you have to write a book about the dangers of tables and um, <laughs> single-pixel GIFs in, in 2017? Uh, well, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Um, <laughs> no, I, 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 think, I think it's interesting when you... When, when you've been around for a while, like we have, um, you start to see trends repeating. You start to see not literally the same issues, but echoes of the same kinds of thinking or traps or, you know, assumptions that maybe we had in the past that led us astray. And so ha- having an eye for that and, and by pointing to the similarities between things in the past and things happening now or just the way that these things echo and reverberate could be useful for people today, people starting out mm. today. Like I remember when, um, you know, about 10 years ago when Ajax came along and, yeah. right, there was, we were all talking about Ajax and, you know, Jesse coined a term and suddenly we could we could talk about this thing. But there were all these technical issues around it like, uh, ah, the back button isn't working like I expect or ah, I can't bookmark the changed state of this thing because we're using Ajax. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, hang on, these problems sound familiar. And I was like, all right, we, we had these problems with Flash. And and even mm-hmm. before Flash, we're like, oh, I remember frame sets, right? And we had these these same <laughs> right. problems. So it's like, oh, these these echoes of 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 things that keep coming over and over. And usually they come down to assumptions. Like when when the iPhone came out, and suddenly it's like, oh no, um, people are accessing our websites on tiny screens, and we don't know the network connection, and we don't know. You know, all these conditions, like, well, back in the 90s, uh, you know, we didn't know any of that stuff either. And we kind of dealt with it. And yeah, things that seem to be new 
um, often contain some kind of echo of the past. And I kind of I, I belabored that point a bit in the book by pointing out that you know all of all of history is like that that we, sure. we're always building on top of things and you know the world is full of 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 these echoes of the past the, the reason why things are shaped the way they are or work the way they are is often out to some historical accident um, but yeah i don't know it's just interesting to to point this stuff out i guess and you released it on the web you didn't make it a book was there some thinking around that um yeah i, I hadn't thought about it that much so i mean the ideas that are in the book that are sort of um, culmination of things I've been talking about at conferences for mm-hmm. maybe the last two years, maybe maybe a little bit longer. Um, so in a way that the book is an amalgamation of a, a few different conference talks. You know, if, if a conference talk is about an hour long, this is maybe three conference talks um, sort of packed into the book and turned into book form or written form, I guess. So, so it's in a way it started life as conference talks. I didn't want to just simply literally take the transcriptions of the conference talks and put them online, but you know, crafted into something that that flows better um to be honest i was thinking it would would be really nice as a as a physical published little book and i i got in touch with jeffrey at book apart and said hey you know i've I've written this thing i I didn't get in touch before writing it i got in touch after i'd written the whole thing it was like oh do you want to do you want to publish this uh and he said no because it didn't really fit you know the kind of model they've got with you know a book about a single thing because the book isn't really about a single thing um so he's like, no, not really fit for us. And I was like, oh, okay. And initially I was a little disappointed. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And then the more I thought, well, I'll put it out on the web. And the more I thought about that, I realized, oh, no, that that feels right. That feels like the right yeah. thing to do. Um, yeah, and made the kind of the web version as sort of the canonical version. And then yeah. generate different versions, copies from that. So, you know, you can you can download a PDF or EPUB or any of that stuff or listen to the audio. But that the web version is the canonical version. And I felt right well it feels feels like uh the principles of the book embodied in the artifact yeah a few people said that after i published it was like oh yeah you're kind of practicing what you preach and um it wasn't that deliberate it's more like i was actually having fun with it because yeah writing the book took maybe a year not solid writing like it was just you know snatching a bit of time here and there but it was yeah at least a year of a little bit of writing a little bit of writing and it came together and then when I decided, okay, I'm going to put it online, I'm going to make a website, and the book will be the website, I, I started in on a weekend, putting it together, and it was like the opposite of the writing process. Because by the end of the weekend, I was like, I'm pretty happy with this, this looks good, and this was fun, and it all happened really quickly. And I wasn't really thinking about, oh, it's got to, um, you know, practice what it preaches, it's got to, you know, be be an example of what's right. in the book. It was more like, no, I'm having fun, and, and making a website, turns out, is still fun. <laughs> you know, a small, it can simple be, especially website. if you do it yeah, by yourself. Exactly, you know? like a small. You know, you're not working on a team. You're not worrying about you know all the things that go into production websites and the overheads right. and, the, and the the build tools and the processes and all of that and maintainability, all that stuff. And just like, hey, I'm going to spend a weekend making a website. That's nice. Yeah, it was fun. It's, it's like it's like uh, being in the wood shop. Yeah, Make it really, it really kind of felt that way, and, and and really crafting it as well. You know, kind of to a ridiculous degree. Those kind of, you know, I was I was crafting the words like okay. So, here, so here's a ridiculous thing I did was that I didn't want to have any orphans. It's, I always get confused between widows and orphans. What is it when a word is left over at the end of a? I get confused too, but you don't have any pages, so you're just talking about one word at the end of the paragraph. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I went through literally every paragraph and put a non-breaking space 
<laughs> before, before the final word of every paragraph in the book <laughs> just but you know and it was it, that's a silly thing to do but it, i was kind of you know wanted to be just right no 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 that's that's like look with, without commercial constraint you can really really practice yeah. the craft like as an art right like there are you, you're you're able to lift a bunch of those constraints like budget and time deadline and all that kind of stuff and then you can yeah no and i think that's a way of kind of honing what we do even if I mean, we yeah, can't practice it in our work every day. Exactly. Can, I, I, right. I find the personal projects are how I actually learn more than on, say, client projects, in terms of technologies anyway. Because yeah. I always feel guilty if I'm going to try out a new technology on the client's dime. It's like, sure. oh, you know, I'm not going to get it right first time. There's going to be a lot of me messing around. And I feel bad charging somebody for that. Um, even though I shouldn't, you know, that's part of the job. Sure, but, sure, sure. But I, I get absolutely yeah, I've what got you my mean. own website. I've got side projects. And there I, I treat them as a playground and I can, I can mess about with this stuff. And it does then end up um, coming back into the client work. You know, we'll be in a meeting or something and somebody will mention something. And I'll go, oh, you know, I was just playing around with this technology that I think would, would fit really well with what you're describing. And so there's kind of an interplay. So, and it keeps me sane having the, the personal projects. The, yeah. You know, just having my own website keeps me yeah. sane. I totally get that. For the for the past few months, I have been myself kind of digging back into where where is our whole stack these days. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's it's very easy to to for me anyway to have a good fundamental understanding of technology and what it means and where it's going and what the trends are and stuff like that, uh, and lose track of some of the details. Like, oh, things that used to be hard aren't anymore. Yeah. And and so when it came to th and uh, for that matter, um, I'm seeing my kids have a real hunger to learn some of the coding principles that I frankly don't know anymore. I mean, geez, the last time I wrote code was probably Perl, you know, like yeah. a long, long time ago. Uh, I never really got paid to write code. So I, you know, as almost like you're saying, like spending a few hours out in the woodshed, this idea or in the workshop, this idea of I picked something. So I started just digging into, all right, where's JavaScript these days? And then mm -hmm. what's built on top of that? And what's Node-like? And what is React-like? And, and where's CSS these days? And, and doing little projects to sort of, and, and running through all the, like, the phenomenal tutorials and resources that are out there. Did you see uh, Gina Trapani's post about that, about learning JavaScript these days? No, I should It's a fantastic post. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link to it. It's really good about, you know, what, what, what it's like for an old-timer like us to revisit something like JavaScript in 2017. Oh. That's exactly what I'm doing now, and learning like functional programming and stuff like that, right. as, as and and all of that has been it's been great. It's been really kind of reinvigorating, and and I'm feeling a little bit the same as you. I think we, we, what you were ex explaining a bit earlier is like, oh, look at this—a new generation of much more robust tools, but falling into some of the same traps. Mm. And I saw yeah. you uh, tweet, I think, uh, last week, something about being concerned, more concerned about. HTML in JavaScript than CSS in JavaScript. I'm like, what does he mean by that? And sort of, you know, like digging, <laughs> digging into like, oh, these are like the React components and pushing them out. It's all just divs and spans and nobody and, and stuff like that. So anyway, I thought I would raise that with you and, have you, and, and let you talk a little bit about that. I, I need to quote, so the, the limits of 140 characters, of course. You know, I'm still in my mind when I think JavaScript, I think JavaScript in a web browser. Right, right. right. And of course, these days, that's no longer a safe assumption that somebody can be programming JavaScript and they're programming on the server mm -hmm. and they're programming in Node and they're, they're outputting HTML. And that's, that's, that's great. And that's not what I have issue with. I'm talking about literally like, let's do it all in JavaScript where it's, it's uh, I'm sorry, let's do it all in client-side JavaScript. Sure. Right? Whether it's CSS or HTML. And, you know, tying CSS to, to client-side JavaScript like that, I can 
eh, I can kind of see it because you know it's it's one of it's a presentation layer rather than behavioral. But okay, I get it. But the HTML, I mean, that's where your content lives. So making that dependent on on the behavior layer feels really weird and, and worrying to me. But um, other people were confused by that tweet too, and they they asked for clarification and said, "But you know, I'm I'm outputting HTML with my JavaScript on the server." I'm like. Okay, yes, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. And that's but they're related. I, so, I think they're intimately related in that like Node and JavaScript on the server is, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say something as controversial as it won and that's what everybody's using, but wow, is it embedded in the culture, uh, the, the development culture mm -hmm. these days. And I think that has sh blurred the lines between what is front end and what is back end because it's all oh, yes. JavaScript. And if it's all JavaScript, yeah. then why don't we just use this beautiful and elegant system we have on the server and propagate it right out to the browser? And I think that's where we get to this idea of like, look, they're, they're all just a bunch of methods and you expose them and you listen for events and manipulates the DOM and we squirt some HTML in there for, you know, so that there's words to read on the page, but that's all it is. And I think that gets to this real like historical, like, whoa, 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 we've done this a bunch of times and it never works. Yeah. Well, what, what, I, what I've seen looking at the historical picture is, is what you tend to see are pendulum swings, right? Things will swing to quite an extreme, but they won't stay there. And people will hit the, the the same problems, right? That people have hit before, like oh, actually the performance is really bad if you try and do it all on the client side, right? Making the user download the entire JavaScript library before they can even see a hello world, right? Yep. So people run into those. They, the, the pendulum has swung that far. They run into these problems, and the pendulum starts to swing back, and usually ends up somewhere in the middle. And that's where you kind of back to the hype cycle. But that's where you get into the productivity part. It's like okay. Uh, I'll use this technology appropriately. Like when it's appropriate, I'll do JavaScript on the server. And when it's appropriate, I'll do JavaScript in the browser. And everyone just gets back to work. But it's almost inevitably this initial push to like, let's do everything with whatever the new technology is that we're currently infatuated, right? Let's make everything into a voice UI. Let's make everything, you know, JavaScript in the browser. Um, but yeah, these pendulum swings seem to happen over, over and over again. Um, so I try to bear that in mind and not, you know, not get upset when I see people what, making what I perceive to be mistakes and think, no, no, you, you, you should learn from the past. But and and try to remind myself, like it'll be okay, you know, they'll they'll figure it out. But there's always that 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 painful period in between. I guess the the, the thing that worries me a little bit more, because I mean, we're talking about details here, right? Like whether it's, you know, client or server, or whether it's JavaScript doing the the logic on the server or some other language. That's that's all sort of plumbing, really. What what worries me is that on a, on a longer term scale, is the web itself and who gets to make websites. Yep, yep, yep. And you know, for the longest time, it's like you were able to say like, oh, as long as you can open up a text editor and learn this HTML stuff, like these angle brackets, you can make a website, and um, that's very empowering and it's really cool, and that's how people get their first toe in the water, and then they learn some CSS, and then they learn some JavaScript, and they start to hit run into programming concepts which are definitely trickier to get your head around but you know you persevere and you do it whereas if step one is okay you've got to understand javascript which is a programming language which means you've got to understand variables and loops and functions and all this stuff then i feel like that closes the door to people wanting to maybe explore the web and turn it into i guess my nightmare scenario for the web is that it's uh, the web is only created by a priesthood Right, that the people who, who have the skills to and the knowledge, um, you know, hard earned knowledge, but it's still like, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, you know JavaScript, so you can you can make websites, whereas, 
I liked, I might be very naive of me, but I like the idea that's like, oh, you, you just got an idea for something you want to publish, you can make a website. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's what really worries me is more about the, um, yeah, the barrier to entry. Just uh, let's, let's dig into that just a little bit, right? This, this idea that programmatic languages is a filter of some sort that would, uh, that mm. would keep people away from being able to contribute content. Because to, to be honest, I think even text editor, you know, FTPing and having to type all, type all the, the angle brackets and even, even that, I think that's a, that can be considered a pretty big f filter. It's, it's, oh, absolutely. It's just absolutely. a matter was, of where we draw the line, right? Which oh, is why you remember, think... Remember, that was the, the revolution of, of, of Blogger was right. you don't have to type the angle brackets anymore. Yep. You just type your words into this, this form field and we'll take care of all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, it, to me, it gets to, it's uh, sort of generational. Like what level of technology are you comfortable with uh, that doesn't appear to be magic anymore because you grew up with it? You know exactly. what I mean? Yeah, like, I, totally. And I could, be, I could be wedded to this idea that, oh, HTML is easy enough to learn simply because, well, I learned it. Right. So that's why I think that. It's like, you know, when people talk about, um, oh, the music in the in the '60s was so much better and freer. It's like, well, what age were you in the '60s? You're in your twenties, right? That explains That's why you thought the music was. It's actually what, what age you were that mattered more than what the actual, you know, the the, the thing itself. And it could be that, like, okay, I had this great epiphany with HTML. Therefore, HTML is the is the best way to learn this stuff or the easiest way. Now it's completely subjective. Yeah, I want, on, well, on that's what part. I wonder. And when I say generational, I mean, is there a generation of kids that are growing up where digital literacy to them means, well, you write code. I mean, I, I started learning code when I was in first grade. That's what we did, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I don't know if that's the case, uh, if that's way too overly optimistic about education and, and, and even the accessibility of programming languages. It'd be great if it were the case. And I know that there are, you know, these initiatives like, um, you know, programming in Scratch and stuff like this, where, you yeah. know, young kids can learn these concepts like loops and, and, and variables and all this kind of stuff, um, which means if you've got that, then, yeah, the syntax of whatever JavaScript or whatever the language happens to be, it's kind of right. by the by. It's, it's about the concepts. Yeah, if that is the case, then, then great. But I worry that, I, I guess you're right. You, I have an assumption or a hypothesis here that a declarative language or you know, a reasonably well-designed declarative language is yep. inherently easier to learn than any kind of procedural language. Yep. Yep. And I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's, it's a hypothesis I'm, I'm working with, I guess. No, the same is true for me, though. I, uh, and I wonder if it just propagates into the future. Mm. I mean, for me, it was like HTML clicked for me instantly because I had been using uh, WordPerfect with formatting codes, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, I get this. Like that. Um, uh, so it was a natural step forward. I'm like, oh, this is actually much easier. Like, and that was my transition into more procedural languages via Cold Fusion. Oh, yeah. Which, if you, if you remember way back then, were a set of tags where you embed yes. things like, like uh, database queries and variables and loops and things like that. It was much, much more forgiving and, and um, very, very simple to learn the basic concepts and then like you, and you did the same thing you took your file you stuck it on the server you loaded it in the browser and it just got interpreted and worked i'm like wow that's great so um yeah i don't yeah. know i don't know where we'll head i know and i'm the same like on the, on the one hand like i say my, my my worry my fear is that um the web the barrier to entry to the web to making something web gets higher than it was in the past and that's, I think, a bad thing. I want that barrier to entry to be low. But then, I, you know, there's a lot of evidence that it's, it's easier than ever 
to put something out there on the web. Like you say, if you if you don't want to actually write the HTML yourself, then you've got all these tools to be able to instantly publish, you know, social networks mm. or um, blogging platforms, whatever it might be. And um, even if you are getting into the, you know, programming side of things, you know, just sharing stuff these days is so much easier with stuff like GitHub or CodePen. And um, so on the one hand, I, I, yeah. I have these fears and worries. And on the other hand, I see evidence for the exact opposite, that actually it's easier than ever for anybody to to get into this world and and it's a great thing. So, yeah, you know, glass half full, glass half empty kind of kind of yeah. thing. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We used Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We used Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial, and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. It is encouraging to see in the, in the world of programming languages and things like that, that there is some level of standardization that's actually happening, like that JavaScript is backed actually by ECMAScript and that like an open source database filled with JSON is a super robust and resilient way of managing content that can go to web pages and can go to a voice activated I'm trying not to say the word. My uh, uh, oh, oh. my Amazon <laughs> woman in a tube over there. Gonna like, activate. You know, yeah, but I mean, you, you could say like, well, sure, text files with markup are ha have proven resilient, but now you know, so has you know JSON and and all of the ways to consume and and store and 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 spread spread it around the world. Yeah, I think I think you're right at the, at the plumbing level things tend to settle yeah. down and settle into basically what's the the simplest possible standard that will work. I mean, the reason why I think JSON works is that it's it's simple enough, but no simpler, right? Like key value pairs turned out to be enough to get the job done. 
Whereas, you know, yeah. the, in the in the semantic web world, it's all about triples. You know, we've got three things. Well, it turns out three's, three was too many. One's not enough. <laughs> two's just right. And you things mean, settled down. You mean like RDF? And yeah, like exactly. A, all the R- RDF stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think at the plumbing level, you're right. Things things settle into this like, oh, yeah, this is great. But I want at the service level, I feel like we took a step backwards. You know, that was, there was that great essay by Anil Dash, right? The Web We Lost. Talking yeah, about, you know, yeah. it, it used to be that, you know, you'd, you'd make a service that does one thing really well and you interoperate it with all the other services. Like, you wouldn't attempt to do photo sharing. You just interoperate with Flickr because Flickr does photo sharing and it's really good at that. And that, so that's not at the plumbing level. It's kind of at the service level. And the, I feel like the model back then for what, you, what would count as successful was, oh, if you got some service that does one thing well, you, you're winning. You're doing well. Um, and that model seems to have changed over time. And... I, you know, I could take the obvious route here and, 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 and blame Facebook, right? Because Facebook sort of changed the rules of engagement and said, no, no, we can have something that tries to do absolutely everything and wins, right? It's like it's, it, it does all the things. It does the photos and it does the location and it does mm-hmm. the events and mm-hmm. it does everything. And now the model for success seems to have turned into like, ah, we must own every bit of it. We must control all parts, so kind of the service side of things seems to have closed up. While the plumbing, you're right, the plumbing end of things seems to have standardized well. You know, we don't have browser wars anymore, really. I mean, browsers right. compete on how fast they can implement standards, which is great. Right. You know, everybody wins. Right. Uh, so we don't really have that same battle at the plumbing level, but at the service level, kind of almost that, that, that um, more, more of a human level, really, that the spirit of, of how we did things on the web seems to have closed down a bit or or the, the rules seem to have changed a bit there um, so that's so the, one way of looking at this is that you can absolutely 100 percent still write in a text editor and stick a file on a web server and have a domain and nothing is stopping you from doing that i think what you're touching on is yeah but is anybody ever going to see it yes which to me is uh, uh it can kind of i i always get frustrated when people talk about this um as a reason not to do something, like we'll say, no, you, I agree. Because, because yeah. for me, that was the whole point of the web was that nobody was stopping you, right? You, you're right. Maybe nobody will ever read this thing that I've published, but I could publish it, and nobody stopped me. And to see people stop themselves, right, to act as their own gatekeepers. So, if, you know, for most of the 20th century, we've had gatekeepers. You want to get a book published, there's a publishing company to, that's the gatekeeper. Yep. If you want to get your music listened to, there's a record company and that's the gatekeeper and with the web for the first time oh there's no gatekeeper now you're right there's no there's no guarantee anyone's ever going to hear or read the thing but at least there's not a gatekeeper so to hear people act as their own internal gatekeepers and say well i won't publish that thing because no one's ever gonna no one's ever gonna read it you know i I think what i'm saying is i'm not gonna put it on a web server because nobody's going to see it what i'm going to do is just i'm not going to make it a facebook post because then i know thousands of people are going to see it instantly or i'm going to stick it on medium because man i get great distribution from the network effects at medium so why would and i've i'm guilty of this i don't put things on veen.com i put them on medium because i get way more way more people see it over there well it doesn't it doesn't have to be either or so so it certainly does and and to medium's credit like they have they have implemented like canonical yes, links and, they've, and things they've, like that. Ever since launching their API. So here's the way I treat I post to Medium, but I, I give Medium a copy. So I, right. I treat it almost like RSS, but just at the level of one post. Like, oh, so the canonical version's on my website, but I'm, I'm syndicating 
a copy to Medium because if people want to read on Medium, that's fine. Right. You know. Right, right. And I try. I actually try to do that for everything. Um, so this kind of the more extreme uh, edge of the indie web movement is that you you literally publish everything on your own website and only give copies to to the third parties. Right. Right. So like. I've been- I've been watching uh, Tan Tech do that right. with his tweets for a long time. Oh, yeah, and I, I do it with mine. All, that tweet you saw last week, you know, about HTML yeah. and JavaScript, that's, that's actually started life on my website. And then the tweet version was the copy. Ah, um, nice. So I do it with photos as well. They start life on my website. I send copies to Flickr. It's a little different with Instagram because there's no API uh, method to send a photo to Instagram. You can only pull them out. Um, ah. But, yeah, so, I mean, that's the way I kind of resolve that conundrum of uh, – because, yeah, obviously, it would be ridiculous for me to expect everyone to come to my website if they're comfortable reading in Medium or Facebook or wherever it happens to be. I like that. So yeah. trying, trying to break uh, that, that dilemma by, by having my cake and eating it too. Yep, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. I hadn't, I, yeah, I hadn't quite realized that. But that, uh, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, photos, I've always kind of thought of that, that, like, the photos live in my photo collection wherever I choose that to be. And, and it is in a bunch of places because I keep redundant backups. But then I, I do, I take versions of those photos and post them to Instagram. I don't consider Instagram to be the home of right. the photo. Yes. It, it is just a, uh, it is a uh, interpretation of the photo. Generally, you know, looks different. It's been cropped differently and things like that. <laughs> Interesting. That's good. Um, all right. So the, the, in the, um, book, you identify, I think, a really interesting and incredibly simple framework for how to make decisions around this stuff. Let me let me go over that. Uh, three points. First point, identify your core functionality. Second point, make that functionality available using the simplest possible technology. And then the third point, enhance. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm talking about that from a technical point of view, right? As in um, identifying what, you know, core user needs. You know, you're building a, a, an email app okay they need to be able to read email they need to be able to write an email okay what's the simplest technology you can use to do that and use that's like mm-hmm. well html on the front end and some server storing stuff in a database on the back end so, so the point here is not to choose the best technology but the simplest again there's, there's an assumption here and the assumption is that the simplest technology will be the most widely available and accessible in the sense of accessible to the most amount of people yeah uh but if you just stop there, then it's a rubbish product. So the third step is really key, which is that you enhance, and that's when you add the bells and whistles. You make it really smooth, and you add all the, the the extra layers on top, and that's where you distinguish yourself from the competition. That's where you add your, you know, key uh, differentiators. Um, but the whole point is that even if something were to go wrong at that level, like something breaks at the level of the the behavior, the the animations, the something there, that you've built it on a solid foundation. And it can always fall back to that simpler version. Like the, the, the core functionality is available to everyone. And you can have loads of other functionality that is, requires the latest browser, right? As long as it's not the core functionality. Um, so it's about making that distinction between what's, what's crucial and what's, you know, an enhancement. And it, it, some people bristle at it because when I say something is an enhancement, what they hear is, oh, it's just an enhancement. What you're saying is this is just an enhancement. Right. And I'm not saying that at all. Like, you know, animations and motion design, hugely important. And I'm not, I'm, but they're an enhancement. They're not just an enhancement. They're a hugely important enhancement. Um, but people hear me, I guess, saying, oh, you're dismissing all this stuff as just enhancements. But the word just is not anything that I've ever put in there. Um, 
See, I'm thinking about it, yeah, from the from I guess the technical point of view. It's yeah. a, it's a kind yeah. of a way of thinking. But I, I realized afterwards that it's kind of the same thing, and you know, in the worlds of UX and design, when people totally, talk about you know totally. the, the lean and the MV, MVP thing, and absolutely, yeah, that you, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think about that in like from a UX perspective, that at at the fundamental level, something needs to be possible. Yeah. Then it needs to be usable, and then it needs to be desirable. That's, right. That's, that's it exactly, and yeah. that is the that's sort of the the hierarchy of success of a feature, and and you got to start with possible, right? You yeah. can't start with desirable, or you get convoluted solutions and things that don't scale and and stuff like that. So no, I think it's a I, th- I think it applies. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I, yeah, I don't think it's a new idea. It's just another framing of you know things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or um, uh, the 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 layers of user experience, right? Uh, all these these classic. Uh, models we've used for years for for other disciplines i just decided to apply it to technology um where I th- what i find is in the world of technology in the world of um uh yeah the, the building of the, of, the, of websites and, and stuff that that people tend to think in quite binary terms they tend to think you know something is either working or it's not or um you know it exists or it doesn't and not that something can be in this multi-state situation depending especially on the web you know it depends it depends on the user's browser and the user's network connection, the user's operating system, the user's device. And instead of trying to fight that and trying to make something that's exactly the same regardless of all of those conditions, sort of go with it. Accept all of these changeable things and go with that flow and accept that, yeah, it's okay that it doesn't look exactly the same in, in all these different devices and browsers. Until you get to the design review with your boss. So this is the interesting thing. When I talk about this stuff, and I'll, you know, I'll give a conference talk. I'll be trying to hammer home this point. You know, and, and it is based on this fundamental assumption that you know, it's okay that websites don't look the same in every browser. Um, which you know, these days, finally, I think we're, people have that understanding. But you know, undoubtedly, when it comes to Q&A, someone's like, okay, well, you've convinced me. Now, could you please come to my office and convince my boss, right? <laughs> and that's another reason why I tend to stay in the world of the technology because when it comes, you know, technology, programming, development, all this stuff, that there are hard problems, but they're solvable. Human beings, now that's, that's a tough problem area. <laughs> and uh, I kind of don't want to go there. I realize it's actually where the hard problems are, is convincing the boss, convincing the client, whatever it may be. Um, that's where the real work actually needs to happen. But um, I'm, I got nothing, right? I'm like, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, but you know, that's, that's, that's up to the individual person to do it. And I, I started having that conversation in 1994 when we first started making the website for Wired Magazine, and we had some of the world's best designers sitting around the table saying, uh, what now with the page size and the fonts and the colors? And I'm like, 216 colors? Is that enough? <laughs> you know, that kind of... Yeah. Um, so, you know, and so for 20-some years now, I think that's been, that's been a conversation. We at Adaptive Path put a lot of effort into that, to say, um, even just talking about the the ROI of usability, let alone like the ROI of web standards and stuff like that, and trying to explain how, look, your business has a margin that is razor sharp. Like you make 4% on the uh, above the cost of whatever you're building. Uh, why would you want to in any way decrease that audience by arbitrary changes uh, in the technology that you use to, to um, provide those services? So Adaptive Path, I think, really blazed a trail in, yeah, really... Uh fighting for the corner of of user experience you know to, to have that seat at the table yeah 
Um, yeah, it was certainly a big inspiration to us. You know, we found a clear left. It was like, see what Adaptive Path are doing. Like, we feel like that's what needs to happen. Yeah, well, it still needs to happen. I mean, it's still a constant, constant. Um, I mean, look, I've worked with startups all the time now. There's only two things that are important to startups, and that is prioritization and momentum. Like, that's it. Like, what are mm. the things we're going to work on first, and how long do we have until we run out of money? Like, that's it. That's the, that's the, the only, like, for the first, well, perhaps forever, but certainly in the first 24 months of the life of a company who's making the new product. So how do you convince them to take a step back and think about this bigger picture um, and, and try to frame it in language that they're going to understand? If you're, you know, if you're trying to make it like, no, this is like the global repository of human knowledge and we need to make it accessible to everybody. And they're like, I don't really care. I need to make it accessible to enough people to be profitable in right. 18 months. You know, so there's conversations you can have around technical debt and eventual scalability and things like that, uh, that I think are probably the pathway through that. But I agree. It's still really, really difficult. I don't see. I thought that maybe this that side of the the fight had been won by you know thanks to the work of people like adaptive path that you know design and user experiences understood now to have value in value in the sense of monetary value and investing in design uh will give you a return on investment i i i was maybe i'm naive but i thought that 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 side of the 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 fight had kind of been one that we're into kind of a new phase now um I guess I guess the way I'm seeing it is from the perspective of let's say clear left, we're we're a design agency, and previously we'd be constantly trying to sell design, sure. like trying to sell the importance of design. And more and more um, clients, companies, businesses, they don't need to be sold design; they understand it to the point that in fact they've got their own in-house design team. Yeah. So why do they need an agency well, sure. to yeah. come in, right? In fact, so Adaptive Path are now an in-house design agency, right? So as, as it happens, that, that, yes. <laughs> as it happens, so, so that that trend, is like, it, I felt like we had kind of entered a new phase. Like, ah, now that now that design has a seat at the table, um, what can we offer as a, you know as an outside perspective? And we yeah. were kind of doing soul searching and trying to figure that out. Which I guess experience being the answer um, to that one. Yeah, but it's interesting to hear you say that you you know because you work with startups a lot that you're still seeing this 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 fight to have to say that design matters or user experience matters? I would say that it has never been better, but I would say we're mm -hmm. a long way from, from the goal. Somebody uh, I was talking to recently used the phrase, I think of design as the scientific method for business. Mm -hmm. And that notion that you can use the principles of user experience as the fundamental organizing uh, principle of your, the way you conduct your business, I, I don't think we're there yet. So I think a lot of, mm. I, I think most businesses now would uh, agree with, oh, the reason the iPhone won was it was a better experience. We want to have a better experience like that. We should get some designers. So in almost this like right. cargo cultish cargo, way yeah, of yeah. like, yes, okay, designers seem to be important, but designers aren't going to have a seat at the table with the CFO and the head of sales and, and making all of those decisions. Not quite yet. Like, I don't think at the Fortune 100 businesses that saying the way that we should figure out our next steps in the strategy of our business is through ethnographic research and an interpretation of those uh, findings mm. that, that generate an idea space that we can choose from so we know that our product will be resilient when it, when it reaches the market. Like, I don't think we're there at, at that level. You know, it's funny because you're, you're talking about, you know, these cycles and seeing things repeat. 
And when you talk about the design as the scientific method, you know, yeah. well, that's, that's such a great way of phrasing it. But what it reminds me of is uh, your book. From when was that? I mean, the art and science of web design. Shortly after the Second World War, I think that came right. out. <laughs> and you know, ahead of its time, because like here we are still trying to kind yeah. of fight for. I guess yeah. What you what I'm hearing from you is that a lot of people are still thinking of of the design thing as being more on the art side. Yeah, more. This sprinkle of of pixie dust. Yeah. And and actually, what you know, people like you have been arguing for years is that no, it's a science as well yeah. as that, and the science part is is really important. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's a method. And it's a method you can learn. There's exactly. nothing magic about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's, there's, no, so yeah, there's, there's no unicorns here. Yeah. There's, there's more work to do. There will, there will always be more work to do. There, there will be other competing agendas that say, no, 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 that, that's not the method for uh, making our businesses better. This other one is. And uh, fair play. Like, let's all go after it. So anyway, yeah. this was a fantastic conversation. This is great. Um, I am going to point. Yeah, it's been fun. Th- yeah, uh, I'm going to point everybody to your book and to your website and to you on Twitter. Anywhere else? Where, where do you want to send some people to to get yeah, some? But my website is is basically my my home on the web. So from there, you know, people can can find my my copies elsewhere. But yeah, my website is is me basically. Right. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Then, Jeremy, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jeff. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.